Hi there and thanks for using this Bujosian podcast. Today's talk is about food and medicine and there's a lot of debate in this field and Peter's given it a lot of thought. He's got personal experience and he's extended his experience to athletes in, in working in the sports setting. So Peter, thanks for coming to talk about uh, food as medicine. I'm always happy to talk about, uh, about food as, as medicine, uh, which I certainly wouldn't have been able to do a few years ago because I think like most doctors, um, I was pretty ignorant of, uh, of a lot of issues related to, uh, to food and, and to health and, and to injury. And, uh, you know, through, uh, you know, through my, uh, experience, my own experiences and those of my colleagues, I've been you know, a lot more aware, I think, in the last three or four years of, uh, of the importance of, of nutrition. You know, because, uh, you know, as, as doctors, we, we tend to sort of, uh, you know, have a disease uh, model of medicine, don't we, where we, uh, we wait until people get sick or injured and then we, uh, then we ply them with, with drugs and surgery and, and try and get them better. Whereas, uh, you know, I think more and more we're, beca- we're you know, be- becoming uh, aware of the importance of prevention and the role of both exercise and nutrition in, uh, in both uh, health and uh, and preventing injury and, and uh, management of injury. So, so they're the sort of areas that, that I'm interested in. Um, I think uh, food plays an enormous role in, in health. I mean, I think we have a you know huge uh, health issues in in, uh, in Western society at the moment. Issues of obesity, issues of type two diabetes, of fatty liver, of dental uh, cavities, uh, and these are in epidemic proportions. I mean. Uh, you know, in, in in my country, in Australia, you know, two thirds of, of all adults are overweight or obese. Uh, um, one quarter of children are overweight and obese. And, you know, this is a horrendous legacy. You know, and it seems, you know, that for the first time ever, you know, our, this generation of children now will, will not outlive the previous generation. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a terrible legacy to for, for us to leave to our uh, to our children. And uh, and I believe a lot of these issues are are food related and and in particular relate to uh, to sugar. Um, I think you know we've all uh, uh, have a very high intake of sugar, uh, both obvious sugar, you know, uh, adding sugar to, to things, but uh, there's uh, enormous amounts of uh, of sugar in uh, in soft drinks in particular, in sugar sweetened beverages. Uh, but in other uh, in other uh, drinks, you know, that are not quite so obvious, you know, like like fruit juices and sports drinks and so on, and then all the uh, the processed foods that have added sugar. I mean, seventy percent of processed foods have added sugar, so sugar is everywhere, and it really seems that this uh, these epidemics of obesity and diabetes in particular have uh, accelerated quite rapidly since the advent of the low fat guidelines uh, thirty years ago when. Uh, food companies re- reduce the amount of fat in uh, in foods uh, on on the recommendation of of the the, the professions, but replace them with uh, with sugar or sugar substitutes, and uh, and that's really where we've started to to go wrong to the point now where you know the average Australian, for example, is, is having somewhere uh, up near twenty teaspoons of sugar of added sugar a day. Um, and, and in some countries, it, it's even more. And uh, the World Health Organization has rec- recommended, uh, you know, the upper limit of twelve, and ideally six teaspoons a day. So, so a lot of uh, a lot of people are uh, well over that uh, that limit. And I think that's uh, that's probably the single biggest factor. There's a lot of debate in nutrition about uh, a whole lot of issues related to fats and and saturated fats and cholesterol and all these things. But I think the one thing that everyone agrees on is that. Uh, you know, sugar is uh, is a major issue 
in the development of things like obesity and type 2 diabetes. I mean, type 2 diabetes is, is in epidemic proportions uh, in, uh, in Western countries and, and even in, uh, <clears throat> in the developing countries now. I mean, China, for instance, you know, which had never seen you know, type 2 diabetes until relatively recently, uh, <clears throat> are having uh, you know, enormous uh, problems uh, there. And, and you know, quite apart from anything else, it's going to bankrupt the, uh, the health systems of, of, uh, of countries like the United States and, and the UK and, and Australia. And uh, the cost of treating the complications of diabetes is going to be absolutely uh, massive. So, uh, you know, in my opinion, I mean, type 2 diabetes is both a preventable and treatable condition. You know, you reduce the amount of sugar, reduce the amount of processed food. So, so that's really what we're, uh, you know, what, what we're advocating now is, uh, is to reduce that amount of, uh, of sugar. And we can do that by reducing the, uh, the reliance on processed foods and getting back to real foods. You know, so eating like our grandparents did, you know, eating, uh, eating good, healthy, you know, fruits and vegetables and, uh, and meat and dairy and, and nuts and olive oil and so on. The Mediterranean type uh, diet, I think, is, uh, you know, is a really good, uh, a good way to, uh, to go. And uh, just avoiding all the, uh, the extra the sugars and, uh, and uh, trans fats and so on in, in processed foods. So, Peter, you just launched the Trobe University Centre for Sport and Exercise Medicine three nights ago, and you said that this is very relevant in sport as well. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, controversial discussion in sport about uh, about carbohydrates versus fats, and our uh, you know we've we've been in part of the carbohydrate generation, really. I mean, it's all been carbs, 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 carb loading. You know, pasta parties the night before uh, marathons and uh, and so on, and uh, we've encouraged athletes to focus uh, largely on on carbohydrates, and uh, and yet over the last uh, <clears throat> three or four years in particular. Um, there's been uh, quite a movement uh, away from carbohydrates and, and towards fat as a fuel. And uh, it's still you know, very much debated. But it certainly seems from, from what I've uh, read and, and, and uh, what I've experienced with my athletes is that uh, for endurance uh, events, particularly the longer endurance events, uh, um, you know, I just had a, 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 a patient who did a 100-mile race, for instance. Now, that's, you know, that's excessive. We, we'll agree on that. But, uh, you know, who... Who fueled himself completely on uh, on fat, had no carbohydrates, and and hardly needed to eat during uh, during the race, and, and and was fine. So, there's a real t- trend now among endurance athletes and Ironman type uh, competitors to uh, to largely uh, rely on fat as uh, as a fuel, because we have obviously have un- you know almost unlimited, uh, even you know skinny people have uh, quite large reserves of fat that they can draw on as fuel. Whereas with carbohydrates, we know that our our uh, liver and muscle glycogen stores run out after a couple of hours, and we infamously hit the wall in a in a marathon, and that's the equivalent of running out of uh, of carbohydrate supplies. So you need to replenish those supplies constantly. So if you don't have to do that, then that's obviously an advantage. Now the the negative about the the fat thing is uh, is that probably for high intensity sport. You do need uh, carbohydrates because they can—they're uh, more effective at, at that level. So um, we're still, I think, trying to find out—you uh, know—which sports are, and I think there's a lot of individual variation. Um, so, for instance, in the, what we call the high-intensity intermittent sports, like a sport like football or basketball and so on, where um, there's a mixture of, of high-intensity but also endurance. Um, some athletes seem to be able to uh, to function quite well on, uh, on on predominantly fat as a fuel. Others, um, you know, require carbohydrates. And and what's becoming popular now is this uh, this train low, compete high uh, philosophy, where say if, if you're playing football every weekend, you uh, you might sort of train uh, during the week 
with low carbohydrate uh, fuel and rely largely on your fat stores and then you just top up uh, prior to the game um, with uh, with carbohydrates and that's becoming a very popular uh, philosophy among uh, high level high intensity sport uh, athletes. Peter you shared a very interesting story of a person with joint pain and surprising results after changing diet? Well, one of the things that, that uh, we're really interested in is the relationship between, uh, between diet and, and injury or, or, uh, or disease. So uh, we, we had an athlete who uh, had had a, a long history of, of knee pain and uh, had been struggling to actually uh, compete at all and, and was unable to sort of uh, fully train for, uh, for this event. Uh, as a result, uh, was taking some quite uh, powerful drugs um, and very expensive drugs that was just enabling him to uh, to train enough to be able to compete at a reasonably uh, elite level. And um, uh, this uh, athlete required a fortnightly injection of a, of a, uh, a very expensive uh, drug. And and he would know after you know ten or eleven days into that fortnight, he would he would start to get some knee pain, and he would know it was time for his uh, for his next injection. And he had been diagnosed as having a what we call a seronegative arthritis, which is a form of uh, of arthritis, a little bit similar to rheumatoid arthritis. But um, so he required some sort of pretty high powered, expensive drugs to uh, to combat that to enable him to compete. But it, he was still unable to fully train, and he was a little bit overweight and so on. So he came to me basically to try and lose some some weight. So we agreed to go on a low carb, very low carb um, diet with lots of healthy fats. And uh, he stuck to that very, uh, very religiously uh, for some time. And um, uh, three weeks after he started, he came up to me and said, uh, Doc, uh, I forgot to take my injection last week because uh, I didn't get my pain. And it's now three weeks uh, after my last injection and uh, I've had no pain. What should I do? And I said, well, why don't you wait and see and uh, see what happens? Well, that was four years ago, and uh, and he's not had to have uh, any injections since. So uh, his this condition, this seronegative arthropathy, which is probably an autoimmune uh, condition, seems to have resolved as a result of uh, of this uh, this diet, which removed pretty much removed all uh, carbohydrates from uh, from his diet. So that that really uh, that among other things prompted uh, me to become interested in this relationship between between diet and, and injury. And so we're looking at, uh, at La Trobe, uh, we're working closely with our Department of, of Nutrition and uh, looking, uh, starting some trials, looking into the relationship between diet and tendinopathy, for instance, diet and osteoarthritis. Um, there's even evidence of, of, of uh, dietary effects on things like concussion and, and uh, so on. So it's a fascinating area. And uh, I'm sure there is something in this, uh, this relationship between uh, between diet, because a lot of the, the common denominators in these conditions, and uh, not just musculoskeletal conditions, but also things like, uh, you know, cerebrovascular, cardiovascular disease, atherosclerosis, is inflammation. Uh, it seems to be the sort of the, at the core of a lot of these uh, of these uh, abnormalities, and uh, we do know that certain uh, things in the diet are pro-inflammatory, and uh, if we can reduce those uh, the intake of those substances, we can uh, potentially reduce the uh, the inflammation, and we may well be able to control people's symptoms a, a lot better. And what are a few key examples of the pro-inflammatory dietary intakes? 
Well, in particular, the, the simple carbohydrate, sugar and, and, and sugar-related uh, substances. And uh, so, so what, we, uh, what we do with these people is that we get them to sort of uh, take all the sugar out of their diet, take all the processed food out of, the, of their diet, um, and, and try and eat just a very uh, you know, real food diet, if you like. Uh, uh, concentrate on, on, on real foods. And, uh, and that uh, you know, certainly seems to have an effect on, uh, on inflammation. So we're, we're looking to uh, research this further and, and hopefully we'll have some interesting uh, results to report in the future. And just before people crash the internet, uh, Peter, you're not saying that uh, all of these inflammatory arthropathies can be cured by diet and you're not sort of overstating the case. Do you want to just put in context for the person who might be taking a critical view of what you're saying? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's probably worth, uh, you know, patients looking into the effect of diet. I mean, I think, you know, you, you tend to, uh, if you watch carefully what you eat, you know, and, and relate that to your symptoms, I mean, you may well find that, uh, you know, certain things that you eat may well exacerbate your, uh, your symptoms and, uh, and maybe trying periods uh, without certain uh, things such as sugars and so on for a short period of time and seeing the effect that it has. So obviously these things are all very individual. I'm certainly you know, far from suggesting that, uh, that it's going to solve all the, uh, all the inflammatory problems in the, in the world. But it's, certainly, it's one aspect, I think, that uh, probably has been underutilized in the past, underappreciated. Um, because, uh, you know, as I said, we, we tend to be very oriented towards, you know, sort of uh, pharmacology and, and, and surgery as our treatments. And, uh, you know, every medical degree has a, has a course of, you know, a subject called pharmacology and a subject called surgery. You know, not too many of them have a subject called nutrition and a subject called exercise. And uh, I think maybe, you know, we just need to change that emphasis a little bit into uh, prevention rather than, uh, rather than treatment. That's almost a great place to finish, Peter. But maybe you could tell us an end of one story before we close it off. Oh, well, my, certainly my own experiences have been uh, very positive with, with changing my diet. I mean, four years ago, I was uh, a 60-year-old with a family history of type 2 diabetes. I was pre-diabetic. I had uh, high insulin levels. I had tr high triglyceride levels. I had a fatty liver. Um, and uh, and yet, you know, to all intents and purposes, I was, I was you know, apparently quite, quite healthy. I was sort of borderline overweight, obese. And... Uh, I decided to do an N equals one experiment. Now uh, we all know that N equal one experiments are uh, not very scientifically valid, but when the one is yourself, they become quite interesting. And uh, I did that. I went on a uh, on a low carb, healthy fat diet for 13 weeks, and at 13 weeks, I lost 13 kilograms and uh, reduced my appetite. My blood tests improved uh, dramatically. My triglycerides came down by a half. My fatty liver resolved in 13 weeks. Uh, I'd had that for 10 years uh, previously. Um, and uh, and I lost you know I lost a lot of weight and I felt uh, I felt terrific and I've uh, I've uh, kept that off in the, for the last four years kept my weight off and now I'm on a on a low carb diet I wouldn't say I'm on a no carb diet but I'm on a low carb uh, diet I don't have uh, have sugary uh, foods and, uh, and I try and avoid processed foods I don't have a lot of uh, of rice and pasta and grains and potatoes and so on I try and focus largely on uh, on good, uh, healthy, um, healthy foods and a lot of vegetables, uh, fish, meat, oils, nuts, uh, and so on. And uh, you know, I feel uh, I feel pretty good. So, you know, I've got that personal experience, I guess, to back up. Uh, you know, what I what I believe in. And you did say everyone's different, so people can do these end of one experiments on themselves. Yeah, I think it's you know I think we need to uh, to to try these uh, diff and and everyone's different. Everyone has a different effect. It, it's largely related to uh, this concept of insulin resistance that you hear a lot about uh, these days. It depends how insulin resistant we are, and and you know people who are type two diabetic or as in my case were probably pre diabetic. 
um, you know, we've developed a significant amount of insulin resistance and therefore we, that the people with the high insulin resistance probably should have a, a low uh, carbohydrate to, to manage that. Uh, obviously, if you're uh, quite insulin sensitive and, uh, you know, it's not nearly as, uh, as important, you don't have to restrict your carbs nearly as much. So it's largely related to, to the degree of insulin resistance as to how much uh, carbohydrate you should take in. Thanks a lot, Peter. I know you've got chapters to get to work on, so I'm going to leave you to it. Uh, pleasure, Karen. And thanks for joining this podcast. We welcome other opinions from folks who have evidence um, in this area. It's a controversial area and the status quo does need to be challenged and BJSM is open to all comers. So I look forward to hearing from folks who um, agree or disagree on this topic. Thanks for listening and feel free to download the BJSM app for very easy access to BJSM podcasts. 